You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. My name is Pete Betke. I'm the director of the F.A. Hayek Program uh, for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. We have a weekly workshop uh, in philosophy, politics, and economics that's been running for the last 17 years um, in the Department of Economics and will continue uh, this year. It meets every uh, Thursday from 2 to 3.30, and you can find out information on the on the uh, website and whatnot, but one of the things that we do uh, with my uh, colleagues Claire Morgan and Virgil Store and Chris Coyne is we work to set up also uh, these book uh, panels um, when uh, various people that are in our network uh, come out with books that we think are significant. And we're kicking off our workshop this year with a book panel on one of our alum, illustrious alum, Ed Stringham and his book, Private Governance. Um, Just as a little personal note before we get going, I actually credit uh, Ed with a lot of the uh, reinvigoration of the Austrian economics program at George Mason University um, among the students because for a variety of accidents of history, a lot of the faculty who had historically been in the Austrian economics program left to go to the School of Public Policy and to create another uh, organization in the 1990s. And so the uh, student population kind of dwindled in their excitement about that. And then Ed and Virgil came in 1998 uh, to start a program. And I remember in the very first uh, uh, session when I ran my, my uh, workshop, um, someone mentioned Milton Friedman. And Ed was there. And Ed said, yeah, he's a socialist. And uh, everyone looked at Ed, what's that about? Because Ed was curious and he was a curiosity. He (laughs) drew a lot of people to his attention. He got all these people and right before Ed uh, decided he was going to graduate, he told me that he started an alternative Austrian society of which I would not be allowed to be a member. Uh, So that was kind of interesting as well. But Ed has gone on to to, uh, do great things and he is now... Um, the uh, Davis Professor of Economics and Organization and Innovation at uh, Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. He is the current president of the Society for the Development of Austrian Economics, the group he wanted to revolutionize and overturn. I guess he worked with inside, he read his revolutionary cadre well enough, I guess. Uh, He's the former president of the Association of Private Enterprise. He's the editor of the Journal of Private Enterprise, the editor of two books and the author of more than 60 journal articles, book chapters, and policies. He's appeared on CBS, CNBC, CNN, Fox, Headline News, NPR, and MTV. He's also uh, famously has a second career as an actor. Um, He was in the rap video. He was the reporter who loved John Maynard Keynes. Um, And he also was an extra on several movie and TV shows. And I, I asked him how he gets on those, and he says, central casting. They call me all the time. 
um, and his book, Private Governance, all right, um, is now published with Oxford University Press, um, and uh, Ed is doing a bunch of very interesting work um, on this, including work not only in um, private police systems, but also governance systems um, in financial markets and other things. So he'll talk about that. The way this is set up today, Ed will give a presentation of his book, the around 15 to 20 minutes, and then we will hear from two commentators, illustrious uh, and very uh, well-selected commentators uh, for this uh, particular project who have done their own work uh, that's significant in this area. So we have Jason Brennan, <clears throat> who is uh, just recently established the Flanagan Family Chair uh, 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 and Professor of Strategy, Economics, Ethics, and Public Policy at the McDonough School of Business. Um, and he's a professor of philosophy at Georgetown University. And he, before that, was a, associated with the uh, political theory project in the Department of Philosophy and, um, at Brown University. Um, Jason has written a, uh, six books in six years, uh, and uh, he specializes in political philosophy and applied ethics. Um, then we have Bruce Benson, um, who is the uh, DeVoe Moore Professor uh, dis and Distinguished Research Professor um, and Professor of Law at Florida State University. Um, he, uh, his book, uh, Enterprise of Law, uh, is uh, one of the classic works that set in motion a lot of the discussion that works like uh, Pete Leeson and uh, Ed Stringham have pursued in their career. Um, he is a senior fellow at the in in, uh, Independent Institute. He's recently been a Fulbright uh, scholar over in the Czech Republic. Um, and uh, next year, he will be a visiting professor at the uh, uh, Ben Powell's uh, Free Market Institute at Texas Tech um, University as well. All right, so I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to turn the podium over to Ed. Then we'll hear from Jason and then uh, Bruce, and then we'll open it up for Q&A. Thank you, Pete, for uh, the very kind words, and thank you so much for organizing this. I'm very honored to be here, and uh, thank you, Jason and Bruce, for coming here. Really honored to have you be commenting on my paper, and thank you all for uh, coming to uh, listen to me. The topic that I'm going to be talking about, uh, highlighted in my book, is how are markets possible in the world right now and throughout history, there's always going to be uh, the possibility of problems like fraud or predation. So what are the institutional prerequisites for markets to exist? So what I'm going to do is summarize the issues, and then I'm going to go in and give some examples from history and from today, and then talk about the implications. So the most common position is that you need to have contracts and other types of um, exchange. You need to have government to enforce laws. Uh, and this is uh, popular even among a high percentage of uh, anarchist libertarians who emphasize the need for judicial enforcement, albeit private. And uh, the basic idea behind this is the world is fraught with prisoners' dilemmas and even though people might have an incentive, sorry, um, benefit from cooperating, they're going to have an incentive to cheat. So the idea is the government's going to step in and uh, pass laws against the problems like fraud. 
and these external prohibitions are going to enable more trade to take place. So I'll just give you a couple uh, uh, quotes on this. Kirsner says, without enforceability of contract, the market cannot operate. It follows that those institutions cannot be created by the market itself. The market needs governmental extra market enforcement. Uh, Richard Epstein, another uh, classical liberal, law is critical to offer a secure framework for voluntary transactions to take place. One would be a naive, naive visionary to believe that markets could operate without any support from the state. And then uh, other uh, classical liberals, including Doug North, will say, well, maybe you can have certain simple types of exchange without uh, government enforcement. But realizing the economic potential of gains from a trade in a high technology world require third party enforcement. He says a course of third party is essential. And then Manker Olson also argues, he says, most of the gains from transactions like those in a capital market require impartial third party enforcement. Okay, so that's the standard view. Markets cannot solve problems like fraud. Governments are able to solve problems like fraud. Therefore, government enforcement is necessary. So thanks so much, everybody. I appreciate it. <laughs> okay. I'm going to talk about some of the research that I did that went into this book, uh, Private Governance. And I'm going to contrast uh, my approach with what uh, Oliver Williamson calls legal centralism, which uh, says whenever a problem exists, government must solve it. And Oliver Williamson says, most studies of exchange assume efficacious rules of law regarding contract disputes are in place and applied to the courts in informed, sophisticated, and low-cost way. And I'm going to ask whether that actually is the case in the current world and suggest that in many cases, those, any one of those problems uh, is present, and oftentimes many of them are present. Okay, so the first thing is using government is costly. That's just the first thing that we need to recognize. Um, in many cases, government doesn't devote resources to a particular area. Even if they do, using the legal system is costly. It costs you time uh, uh, to call up the cops. It costs you time to go to court, call your lawyer, et cetera. Um, Pete, am I allowed to uh, tell this story? <laughs> so um, I was in Prague with a professor of mine. And um, <laughs> this was in 2000, and um, we just arrived. And we went to go get some uh, drinks, and uh, this professor of mine went to put his um, uh, ATM in the, in the machine, and something happened where uh, it was in the opposite order of American machines, where they got the money, um, or no, they gave him his card, but not the money, and then he was just waiting there. He's like, well, where's my money? And they thought he left his card, so it sucked his card back in, and then the machine closed, like, it's like, Totally, and, and this professor um, was uh, <laughs> freaking out. And he's like, oh my goodness, where's my ATM card? It's Friday night, the bank's not gonna be open till, till Monday. And he's a free market guy, but his initial reaction, I kid you not, is, oh, let me go get help from those cops over there. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Uh, why is GE Capital going to be giving the keys to their vault to the local cops? 
And I was like, no, don't do this. We're going to get arrested. Um, but he went over and talked to the cops. And um, they obviously didn't help him. And the reason I mention this story is even free market economists have this kind of assumption that government's going to be able to step in to solve the problem. And in many cases, they just don't have the resources to do so. Okay, So that's a, an important thing. We cannot assume government is this DSX machina that is going to solve all of our problems. The next problem I want to highlight quickly is government may be aware of a problem, but might not know how to best solve it. Okay, So economists have pointed out that government planners are not omniscient. And we can ask the same thing about law enforcers. The people who are regulating markets or enforcing contracts in markets might not understand how to solve the problems at hand. Uh, so one of the uh, my least favorite movies, the Occupy Wall Street movement, uh, I got to see them every day uh, when I was in New York. And um, they'll have a bunch of claims of what, what government needs to do. So here's one. We need to outlaw credit rating agencies, immediate across the board debt forgiveness for all, debt forgiveness of sovereign debt, commercial loans, home mortgages, home equity loans, credit card debt, student loans, personal loans now. So this is a kind of like a kind of a curious set of economic requests. Um, but then when you ask some basic questions about economics, they can't answer any of them. Uh, who is the chairman of Federal Reserve? 40%. 42% don't know. Only 38% could answer. What is the SEC? 68% says don't know. What is Dodd-Frank Act? 84% don't know. Okay, so for an, an economic movement, their knowledge about economics is not that good. And then you'll have the people in charge of the regulatory agencies, Elizabeth Warren, saying without irony, I created much of the intellectual foundation <laughs> for what they do. <laughs> Okay, so we can ask, does government have the knowledge? Does government have the incentive to solve problems? In many cases, they don't. And uh, I don't need to focus on the public choice arguments here, uh, but the idea is even if the government cares about something, they might have their own interests that they're pursuing, and they're not interested in helping you out. And in some cases, uh, government has much more malevolent interests. They're not interested in protecting the public. <laughs> Okay, so government's not a dis machina, and so that means we can either live with a problem or attempt to solve them. Okay, so that's going to be the theme of what I'm going to highlight over the next few minutes. Unmet needs create a demand for solving a problem. So I'll tell you a true story. This is actually, this happened. I uh, was bidding on these ties, and uh, I won, and it turns out that one of them was Paisley. And it wasn't in the picture, but they sent me a Paisley tie. And I can't wear Paisley. It's the worst thing in the world. And it would just ruin my life. So after a lot of tears, I decided to call up the, uh, the guy who sold to me and say, I'm sorry, I didn't order Paisley tie. No response. Um, and he just wouldn't respond to my emails. So then I decided to call the cops. And I'm like, go get him. Go get that guy. Uh, they didn't want to do it. Called the FBI. They didn't want to do it. <laughs> Called my senator. Nobody took my calls. Actually, the first part of the story did happen. I did get this Paisley tie uh, that wasn't in the picture. But who did I call instead? 
eBay, right? eBay is a private club that creates and enforces rules for their marketplace. And I'm gonna highlight the good part of James Buchanan, uh, his economic theory of clubs. And he, here he and I are at Arby's, of all places. Um, and then apply that thinking from the reason of rules to clubs. So it's very easy to think about how eBay can adopt various rules weighing the marginal costs, marginal benefits of rules. So just, this is a simplified diagram, but assume there's decreasing marginal benefits of, of any given set of rules, increasing marginal costs. Well, let's figure out the optimal set of rules, and then eBay can solve those problems within the club. They have an incentive to maximize the net benefits of the rules for the benefit of their marketplace. And they have an incentive to not have too many rules, have an incentive to not have too few rules. And so let me just go through some quick examples in history to just show how private people do this type of thing all the time and solve very complex problems. So this uh, first uh, uh, set of research was from when I was uh, at George Mason University. And in 17th century Amsterdam, in 18th century London, and 19th century New York, all of these markets, government really didn't understand them. They didn't choose to enforce contracts in them, and brokers figured out how to make contracts in them nevertheless. So 1600s, we've got a very sophisticated market. And even though not, none of the contracts were enforceable, Brokers figured out how to engage in short sales, forward contracts, options contracts, hypothecation, securitization. And what they did was they relied on reputation mechanisms. And I'll give you a quote from Adam Smith in one minute. But when you're dealing with people many times in a day, you can't cheat and expect to gain business. And we have that mechanism also being applied in London, where they use reputation mechanisms plus more formal uh, private dispute resolution systems. So Adam Smith says buying stocks by time is prohibited by government, uh, yet he says all great sums that are lost are punctually paid. Why is that? He says persons who gain must keep their credit, else no one will deal with them. It's quite the same for stock jobbing. They who do not keep their credit will be turned out in the language of change alley called a lame duck. Okay? And he goes on to describe how it's reducible to self-interest. If you want to be successful in business, you've got to follow through with your word because people can convey reputation mechanisms about you. In addition to the basic reputation mechanisms, they also relied on a chalkboard. They would write your name on the board and physically exclude you from the coffee house uh, over time. In addition to uh, uh, excluding you, you know, people who defaulted, they had membership requirements where you had to be reputable. In addition to that, uh, they had an arbitration system to try and resolve disputes within the coffee house. I mentioned the coffee house in the New York Stock Exchange, sorry, the London Stock Exchange. It was a private club and it was called New Jonathan's Coffee House. They would trade in informal settings. They eventually called it the stock subscription room and they adopted as their motto, my word is my bond. They also did this in New York, in Philadelphia, uh, tons of other places. The markets created private clubs to exclude the unreliable. Um, 
Lloyd's of London, uh, same type of thing, used to be called Lloyd's Coffee House. In New York, it used to be called Tontine Coffee House. They had uh, private rules and regulation. A lot of the modern disclosure requirements uh, that we think about were, were private innovations by the New York Stock Exchange. All right, now let me zoom forward a little bit to modern times. In uh, the modern world, we have the exact same thing. Uh, futures contracts, tremendously complicated. You have the potential for unlimited downside risk with a lot of futures contracts. And who here would feel comfortable trusting this guy with a tattoo on his arm? You can't trust somebody with a tattoo on his arm. It's obvious. Um, but when you go to the futures exchange, you're not actually forming a contract with this guy. Both of you are signing independent contracts with this exchange, the clearinghouse, and they're assuming third-party counter-default risk. So you know ahead of time you're going to get your money, and the futures exchange is monitoring third-party counter-default risk. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll give you a couple more modern examples. Uh, electronic commerce. There's all types of ways you can uh, lose money. So please enter your bank account number here. Uh, I got this email the other day. I'm actually going to make a lot of money. This guy promised uh, this great business venture. Um, in, in real life, uh, uh, 15 uh, uh, or 18 years ago, I bought a phone card once and it turned out to be bogus. And there was nothing I could do about it. I called my bank, like, sorry, we can't do anything about it. You bought it, uh, you're, you lose. Uh, well, you can have tons of problems like this on the internet, and especially with anonymous fraudsters. So what we see uh, happening in the late 90s is certain private companies, I'm going to emphasize PayPal, because they were really at the forefront of this, coming up with private solutions to online fraud. And they would predict through a, an algorithm and also human intelligence coupled with computer intelligence, whether a transaction is likely to be fraudulent. So if they noticed like a bunch of $5 transactions all happening, all going to a specific country at the same time, there it's a red flag. And what they did was predicted ahead of time whether or not they should approve this transaction. Now this is basically ubiquitous, but before this happened, uh, there were all types of problems. They were losing millions of dollars per month, uh, and they had to figure out a private solution, and we still uh, can thank them. Today, now Visa and MasterCard have figured out how to do similar things where they deal with fraud ex ante before it occurs rather than relying on a problem after the fact, a uh, solution after the fact. Okay. Uh, other companies that do things like this are CyberSource. Uh, they're now a subsidiary of, of um, Visa, but they view losses from fraud as like losses in a profit pipeline. So it's a risk management question rather than a legal question. Uh, and we can see here they have decreased, helped decrease. This is the percentage of losses uh, due to fraud. It's now around 1%. So it's not perfect, but pretty good. All right, so let me uh, uh, give just the last couple examples and then I will wrap up. Uh, modern complex financial arrangements are uh, tremendously co complex. If you look at how uh, mortgage-backed securities work, 
Uh, they'll bundle them oftentimes, put them in collateralized debt obligations, very sophisticated forms of contracts. These are made possible because of private innovation, not because government regulators are saying, oh, you should do it that way, and I, we know how you do it. Um, at a time where uh, politicians are debating, should we have price controls on interchange fees, or should we outlaw short sales? People on Wall Street can't rely on the government to be enforcing complex financial uh, contracts, so instead they rely on things like uh, ISDA, which helps ensure safe, efficient markets. Um, I've focused on, uh, on um, financial markets so far, but I want to talk about some other ones outside of this and say police, same thing. There's a long history of private police in uh, uh, the United States, and one really cool example is in San Francisco. They've been around since the time of the gold rush. They, merchants, basically had gangs harassing them, and, and so the merchants got together and hired a system of private police. In 1851, they banished a lot of criminals from the city. In 1856, they had a, basically, a, it was called the businessman's revolution against the government, and uh, government spending went down by 85%. And my favorite thing they did was they, a private police enacted gun control against government police. So that's the only type of gun control I support. If anybody wants to learn more, there's a great movie, Cuffs. Well, it's not so great movie, but it's the only great movie, the only movie about private policing is Cuffs with Christian Slater and Mila Jovovich. Um, but they do touch on uh, this. And they still exist in San Francisco today. I surveyed customers of these private police and I said, why don't you just rely on government police? Why would you pay extra money for this? And the, the responses were great, like, that's a joke, right? <laughs> don't trust government police, they scare me, uh, they take too long to respond. You can hire, these people will show up uh, right away. All right, so let me uh, give some concluding thoughts. I wanna highlight that these are just a few examples. We can think about them being you know, just the tip of the iceberg, but an iceberg in a good way, not the kind that sinks ships. Um, but private governance is everywhere. And it's important for very small problems, like the ones with PayPal. You can't rely on the government, or my Paisley tie. You can't rely on lawsuit for a $20 tie. It's just not, doesn't make sense. It's also important for large transactions where you don't want to, companies don't have their money tied up in courts for years when something's so uh, important. Um, and I want to try and get people out of this legal centralist mentality that says, oh, problem? Law's going to solve it. And I want to highlight how there's so many different ways of eliciting good conduct. Dealing with friends, dealing with honest people, repeat dealings, reputation mechanisms, hiring a third party to assume and manage risks, and all types of other uh, mechanisms out there. And to highlight how this can be done at a not-for-profit level, but oftentimes it's done at, for the profit motive. When an unmet need exists, uh, that's a potential profit opportunity, and groups like the London Stock Exchange, New York Stock Exchange, PayPal, have profited immensely by creating these private rules. And I'm going to conclude with the thought 
that private governance not only underpins the simplest markets, but the most complex high technology markets that the world has ever seen, not just a couple times in history, but the past few hundred years, and that the rules of the market emerge from the market. So thank you very much. Okay, now we'll hear from Jason Brennan. Uh, thanks to everybody very much, except for Ed, actually. And the reason I'm not going to say thanks to him is because usually in a thing like this, you're supposed to do kind of the critical role. But the problem is that he's right. And so I can't be a critic. Um, so I actually do thank you for the thanks. book. It's a really interesting book and a really a very great book. Um, and so what I want to do today, then, because he's right, is try to talk about as much as possible. Well, what is the sort of philosophical upshot of this? What should say philosophers and others take from it? Uh, it's kind of my role here to do. So there's a, an Oxford econ a philosopher named David Miller who says, you know, the problem with philosophy is that they don't think, pay attention to institutions at all. What philosophers do is they just come up with what you might call a kind of justice utility curve, a ranking of all possible states of affairs from better or worse from a moral point of view, but then they're completely agnostic about how institutions work. They just take that utility curve and they hand it over to the social scientists and the social scientists then tell us how high up we can get on that curve. And that's, Miller says it's really problematic that we do that. But as a matter of fact, philosophers don't do that. Uh, on the contrary, what philosophers tend to do is a bunch of sort of ideologically motivated intuition mongering atop a bedrock of false assumptions about how institutions work. Right? So what a philosopher should do is pay more attention to this kind of stuff because they're not actually agnostic, and so they come loaded with a lot of mistaken assumptions. So I'm going to briefly summarize Ed's uh, book a little bit more because I want to convince you that it's right even more than he already has, and then I'll talk a little bit about what this would mean for philosophy. So when I read it, it reminded me of uh, the work by Eleanor Ostrom, a Nobel, first female Nobel laureate in economics, um, and that what, what happens often in economics is we have this game theoretic model. It says under certain conditions, it's going to be a disaster. And then the economists learn to look at that and go, oh man, we need to escape those conditions. But if you just stop looking at your mathematical equations on a piece of paper and get up and look around, you're like, wait, those conditions are met over there and it's not actually a disaster. And they're met over there and it's not a disaster. In fact, somehow under the conditions under which we predict people will be fighting and killing each other, they're actually cooperating and living well. And that tells us there's something wrong with the way we're modeling the world, not that there's something wrong with the world that needs to be fixed. So an example of this that might be familiar to a lot of undergrads, because you probably read this, is Hobbes in Leviathan, in The State of Nature. He says, in the state of nature, outside of government, we'll never be able to trust one another. Everyone we encounter will be in a state of mutual diffidence, and I don't know what your intentions are, so I'll preemptively kill you, and you'll preemptively kill me. But we'll realize how bad this is, so that we're going to decide to agree to make someone, I guess Pete, uh, Leviathan, who will watch over us and make sure we don't fight each other. And it's an, odd, it's an odd intellectual dilemma because if we're able to cooperate that well, you know, to put our arms down long enough to create a leviathan, why aren't we able to cooperate on other things? There's an internal logic here where it seems to be kind of incoherent. And then once we create the leviathan, what prevents that leviathan from just eating us all up? And if there's some sort of norms that explain why cooperation is possible despite massive differences in power, well then why wouldn't those explain why we're able to cooperate in the first place without any such leviathan? So Stream calls legal centrism uh, the deus ex machina theory of law. Because what people think is, well, we're in this problem, and law just sort of appears magically out of nowhere and saves the day. But again, you have to ask, well, where did that law actually come from? As he points out repeatedly in his book, often the law that we use actually came from the market itself, and it was not backed up by the state. The state just later adopted it a couple hundred years later. 
In fact, most of our legal conventions that are now codified into law arose outside government. In common law countries, such as this one, or New Zealand, or England, or Australia, merchant law, property law, tort law, these things actually did evolve in a polycentric legal system outside of government control without backing from government or enforcement from government. The laws that govern commercial activity, international commercial activity for hundreds of years were only later adopted by governments, only later enforced, and only a little bit. So government often lacks the ability, the knowledge, or the incentive to create good rules that solve our problems. But when that happens, we don't just dissolve into chaos. We find other ways to cooperate because cooperation is beneficial. They find informal means to cooperate. So an example of this would be like, if I were to put you in a game right now and you play what prisoner's dilemma type game, which some of you have heard of, you'd have a strong incentive to cheat on one another. But if we did that game where after you play the game, what I do is I display on a board the way that you played, so whether you cheated or cooperated, and then you get to choose your next partner, suddenly the game changes. Now your incentive is to cooperate. And the real world is a little bit more like that. It's not a one-shot prisoner's dilemma. It's a multi-shot prisoner's dilemma where people get to choose with whom they interact and where reputations are public. Further, people are not sociopaths. So, uh, for example, there's a Duke uh, psychologist, moral psychologist named Dan Ariely, one of the most famous psychologists around right now, and he frequently puts people in situations where they're able to cheat for money. And what he finds, to everyone's surprise, is you know, most people will cheat a little bit for a little bit of money, but when you make the stakes higher, when you give them more money to cheat, they cheat less. And the reason for that is they feel bad about it. Most people are not sociopaths. They want to think they're pretty decent people at the end of the day. You don't aim to be a moral saint. You're not trying to be Christ-like or something, but you aim to be a B plus or a B on the scale of A to F when it comes to ethics, and you're willing to act in certain ways and others as long as you sort of average out to be a B. Right, so we're not sociopaths, and a lot of times when game theory is looking at why people will cooperate or defect, they're kind of implicitly modeling sociopaths. All right, so that's his argument. Now let's think about what this might mean for philosophy. And when I was reading this, I had in mind a couple of books that came out about 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, I guess. One by uh, uh, Cass Sunstein, legal czar, uh, regulation czar, and legal theorist Holmes, called The Cost of Rights. Another by philosophers uh, Thomas Nagel and Murphy, um, called The Myth of Ownership. And, uh, Sunstein and Holmes say that libertarianism is, and this will be a shock to the George Mason audience, incoherent. Not just false, but incoherent. It's like saying squared circles. And the reason it's incoherent is because libertarians assume that things like property rights exist outside of the state, beyond the state, and don't originate within the state. Uh, but they say, on the contrary, property rights cannot exist without government laws. In the state of nature, there's just no such thing that we could call property, because if you think about it, a property right, like a right to this coat, it's not really a negative right that forbids you from taking the coat from me. Rather, it's a positive right that allows me to ask for government assistance to get the police to beat you up if you try to take the coat. That's all a property right really is. So absent government protection, Sunstein and Holmes say, rights talk is meaningless. You have nothing. Okay? So Nagel and Murphy, being better philosophers, have a slightly more sophisticated and better argument, what I call the institutional dependence argument. And it goes something like this. They say, the current scheme of income and the current distribution of property in society wouldn't exist without government and the taxes that support it. Therefore, you can't say you have any sort of right to your income or right to your stuff aside from government, um, because in the natural state of nature, you would have nothing anyways. Um, so your pre-tax income, when you complain about paying your taxes, your pre-tax income is actually just an accounting myth. Um, and there's something right about this, because it is true that under alternative institutions, I would have probably different stuff. I mean, if we had the institutions of the USSR, I wouldn't like, be so well off, for example. So there's something about that. 
Now, I think Nagel and Murphy, for what it's worth, they recognize that their argument doesn't actually work. They kind of give away the game in their own book because they say you can kind of repeat their argument for other kinds of rights, like civil rights. You can say things like, well, in the state of nature, no one would be protecting me from, say, invasions of my civil liberty. So therefore, the state should be allowed to force me to like, work on the railroads as a corvée tax instead. And their response to that on page 65 of their book is just to say, oh, well, civil rights are different because we're left liberals and we care more about those which is just basically admitting their argument, they don't actually believe it. Um, so it's not really a good argument, it's very persuasive and a lot of people accept this kind of argument, but I think uh, Stringham makes a lot of trouble for it independently of perhaps other problems it has um, because he has a twofold response to them. One is to say, contrary to what they think, anarchism, we can't just say anarchism can't work. We actually see lots of examples of it working and working quite well in cases where we think it wouldn't work, in San Francisco and elsewhere. So anarchism actually can work pretty well and can get people to be prosperous, even if we don't see it sticking around uh, for the long term in many places. But more importantly, because he doesn't have to hang his hat on anarchism too core for this to work, he says that really a lot of the wealth and income that we enjoy and a lot of the rights that we enjoy are being protected not just by government but by private governance. And really the marginal value to you of private governance is probably a lot higher than the marginal value to you of public governance. So yeah, public government is actually helping protect your rights and helping protect your property and other things that you own, but a lot of this stuff is being protected outside of and independent of and is not dependent on government. So for Nagel and Murphy and others want to say, well, you know, the government owns your money because you know, your watchdog owns your house. Well, the watchdog isn't doing quite as much work as they make it out to. And so the watchdog maybe gets a bone, but it doesn't get to have the entire house. Uh, going beyond that, what's the bigger picture here? How much private governance can we actually get? Um, can we just dispense with public governance altogether? It's a big question. And, and like Pete Becky, I've heard him say this before. I see anarchism as a research project, a really important research project for economists, for political scientists, and others who often start or gripped by the tyranny of the idea of the state, that the, na natural, the nation state that we now have is just sort of the way things are supposed to be and have to be. And there are a number of arguments that people make for the state, that it provides protection goods like the police, that it provides regulations, that it provides utility goods that couldn't be provided by the, uh, the private sector, and various forms of social insurance and welfare. And I say Stringham's book is part of a tradition that includes Charles Vito, uh, Eleanor Ostrom, David Schmitz, Peter Leeson here, and others, showing us that we can get most of these things or a lot of these things without the state. And as this research progresses, as we get more and more of this body of evidence, the burden now shifts to the status to show us well, why we should prefer the state to non-state ways of, of uh, getting this stuff. And it's important to note, it won't even be good enough for the status to say, well, the state can do it better. To illustrate that, uh, I read Car and Driver magazine pretty religiously, and it says, you know, the Honda Accord is a better car than the Toyota Camry, and I think they're right about that. The BMW 3 Series is a better car than the Infiniti Q50. So if you're going to buy a, one of those types of cars, you should buy the Accord or the 3 Series, you shouldn't buy the other two cars. I think they're right about that, but it would be absurd to then conclude, well, because they're better, you have to buy those cars and you can be forced to buy those cars. So similarly, even if we can show that in many cases the state does a better job regulating certain things or providing certain kinds of social insurance, it's not yet obvious that that's a conclusive argument for the state, like we will force you to live by that set of institutions rather than an alternative set of institutions that work well enough. Um, 
So in conclusion, I would say, look, the state does, and this is sort of quoting my uh, friend, the political theorist Jacob Levy, and I were talking about uh, the book on Facebook the other day, so I'm gonna kind of quote him or paraphrase him to end. Look, the state does many things. Some of the things it does are good, some of the things are bad, but it's not the answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Why would it be? Thanks. Bruce? Okay, uh, I had a similar problem uh, uh, to the one Jason mentioned at the beginning. Uh, this is a really good book, and it's hard to uh, talk about uh, things that might be wrong with it or uh, that you might want to criticize. Uh, but I dug a little deeper uh, and uh, did, did find a few things that uh, I have problems with. Um, the, uh, but I, let me just, uh, before I get into uh, uh, those issues, let me say that uh, um, this is particularly valuable, I think, because Ed looks in depth at uh, specific case studies of private governance that show, in fact, that uh, it works. Uh, and he's not just theorizing about it, uh, he's, he's showing you. Uh, there is some theory discussion in there. Uh, he does uh, have a chapter on Hayek that is excellent. Um, it's my favorite chapter in the book, I think. Um, but most of the book is, uh, is application, I guess you might say. It's, it's showing how things work. Um, one, uh, one problem I had initially was that he kept uh, using all my economic heroes as, as targets to say, look at all these statists. So he, <laughs> he, he cites uh, Buchanan and Hayek and, and North and, and these people that uh, are giants. Um, but then I realized, well, you have to cite them uh, in this context because mainstream economists don't even think about the question. They just assume that the state has to be there. And, uh, and, and so what uh, they did at least was uh, think about alternative institutions and how they might work. And uh, Ed and I would say they just didn't carry their assumptions far enough, uh, and we're doing that for them. Uh, we, we build on their shoulders, I think. Um, and I, I think Ed would agree with this. I noticed in his slide with the picture of Buchanan and him, that he was just half the man Buchanan was. <laughs> uh, the, uh, um, I, uh, when I read, read through the book, I, I'm sure you can't see this, but I bend over top page, at the top of the page when I find something I really like and that I want to, uh, that I think I might use in the future. Um, I bend over the bottom of the page if I find things I don't like that I want to uh, criticize. Uh, there's probably a hundred or more top pages bent. There's only a half a dozen bottom ones. But that's enough to say something uh, about some of what he has here in a negative way. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the problem, I, the problems or the questions I have actually came up almost exclusively in chapters eight and nine. Um, eight is uh, about his private policing. Um, 
and nine is about uh, what he calls the personal form of private governance, where he's really talking about morality. Um, and uh, my, my problem with the policing is the example he used. He uses the, the San Francisco Patrol uh, example, which is a fun example. I mean, it, 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 I've used it in uh, writings of mine as well. But it's not necessarily a good example of true private policing because, as Ed points out, uh, quote, one peculiar and governmentally determined feature of the system is that in each neighborhood, only one of the independent firms has a license to operate. In other words, government is preventing competition uh, in this market. Uh, and I would have liked to have seen him look at um, an example that would be even better, that where you would see uh, uh, competition in a market. My own work uh, with uh, Brian Meehan, uh, we've looked at regulations of private security which vary dramatically across states. Some have very strict regulations about entry and, and uh, things like that. Others have no regulations. Um, and uh, so I would have liked to seen him pick a, a new example of a no regulation kind of place and see what it looked like. Um, that would have been nice for me too because then I could have used that example instead of the uh, San Francisco one. Uh, but uh, that, so that uh, is uh, a, a, a minor quibble. Uh, he also says in that chapter, quote, other jurisdictions such as the state of North Carolina also have private policing. Um, that is way too uh, tame a statement. Every state in the United States have, has private security. Uh, whether you can call them private policing or not depends on the state regulations. Some states don't let them do much. But furthermore, every, well, virtually every country in the world has private security, private policing. Uh, a, uh, a recent study, 19 or 18, <laughs> 2011 study uh, of the uh, market looked at 70 countries um, and found uh, that in total, uh, somewhere between uh, 19 and a half million and uh, 25 and a half million private security uh, police in the world, about 1.8 times as many as there are public police. Um, and uh, so this is a worldwide phenomenon. It's not uh, just California and, and North Carolina. Uh, so he could have uh, pushed that a little harder. Minor point, um, let me move on to chapter nine uh, where uh, my quibbles are, uh, I think, stronger. Uh, Ed avoided talking about that chapter in his presentation. Maybe he also has concerns about it, I don't know. But the, uh, uh, to, uh, he's talking about a self-imposed constraints in the form of moral beliefs. Um, and uh, how uh, these uh, constraints that we impose on ourselves uh, might uh, work uh, as a form of private governance. Um, and I agree that economists have ignored the issue of morality. 
uh, way too much. Uh, it's it's uh, something we need to understand. Adam Smith told us that, and uh, most of us uh, have uh, failed to recognize it. Um, but uh, I, I think some of what he says about morality is, is a little bit inconsistent, uh, and, and not only internally, but uh, with the rest of the, uh, the book. Um, the, uh, to illustrate this, on page 139, he explains that uh, people face choices, trade-offs. Uh, some of them uh, have to do with uh, uh, what you might call moral choices, where more, uh, your moral beliefs come into play. Um, and uh, so he says there's four things you can, they, you can do in these situations. You can uh, consider the trade-off. Uh, trade-off between morality and, and say, self-interest, or he says material gains, I think. Um, weigh those trade-offs, decide whether it's worth uh, being selfish or, or you want to be moral. Um, you can always be moral uh, and just ignore the, the potential material gains. Um, you can never be no moral, just don't have any morals and, and always pursue the material gains. Um, or you can sort of uh, sometimes uh, adopt the moral constraints uh, and sometimes abandon them. Well, I would argue there's a fifth option. Um, and, and that is that you can change them. Uh, much of uh, Ed's book is about how individuals uh, and uh, in the pursuit of their objectives are uh, uh, creating and adjusting and changing institutions. Uh, if we think of institutions as the rules of the game, then uh, <clears throat> morality is a source of rules. Why are these people not doing it with morality? Uh, he seems to assume that morality is a I don't know, it's the golden rule, or it's, it's what, uh, what leads to co cooperation. Uh, if you think of moral beliefs uh, as what people really believe, um, then I would say uh, a lot of these uh, progressives out there that are all for um, taking money from one person and giving it to another have no moral qualms whatsoever about Asking, having government tax and redistribute. Uh, in fact, they're so, I mean, they're self-righteous. They think they have the moral high ground in this uh, process. Um, so uh, their own beliefs are different, clearly, than the ones that um, Ed uh, is assuming. Um, Kant actually says this uh, uh, in a neat way. He says, uh, people may picture themselves as meritorious, feeling themselves guilty of no such offense as they see others burdened with, nor do they ever inquire whether they would not have practiced similar vices had not circumstances of time and place uh, kept them out of uh, the way of these vices. This dishonesty by which we humbug ourselves and which thwarts the establishment of true moral disposition in us extends itself outwardly also to the falsehood and deception of others. 
uh, we, uh, he too then is thinking that there is a true morality. And I, that's, I guess, what Ed is talking about. But I'm saying, I guess, that uh, if a person faces a sufficiently significant moral dilemma uh, where doing what he thinks is moral is going to be very costly, and doing uh, what he currently thinks is immoral is going to be quite beneficial, he can change what he thinks. Uh, he can change his own um, internal rules. Uh, Ed gets close to saying this at times. He says uh, that uh, these moral norms are norms we create. Uh, so he's not saying we just adopt them. He, he says we create them in our minds. Um, he also points out that uh, uh, the uh, level of cooperation varies across different societies. Uh, I would say varies across different institutions. Um, and he, uh, he points out uh, that uh, where you have market settings, you get, have uh, a stronger tendency to uh, behave cooperatively. Um, so he's implying then this cooperative behavior reflects these moral views. Um, I would contend that the uh, moral views that arise with markets endogenously at the same time uh, are views that uh, are going to support cooperation. Um, Ed uh, mentions, um, oh, uh, what's his name? Um, the uh, Frank. Frank, who ha ha makes an argument essentially that uh, morality is um, um, simply uh, uh, beliefs that we adopt to uh, support uh, our rational. Uh, pursuits, um, sort of uh, like uh, we pick beliefs that, uh, that justify what we're doing. Um, Ed rejects that. Uh, I, I think uh, that his rejection is maybe a little premature. Um, I agree that moral, morals are strongly held, that they don't change easily, that uh, uh, it's, uh, they're much more rigid, I guess, than uh, some of the other kinds of institutions we might face, um, in part because it's very costly to change them. Um, the, but uh, I would argue that, uh, and, and they may be very binding in, in the near term, but I would argue that in the long run, if, if uh, someone faces the, this moral dilemma repeatedly, uh, they're going to find a way to justify uh, doing something different. Um, I mean, uh, people, uh, Weber talked about the, the rise of um, the uh, new re uh, Protestant religions at the time that commerce was arising, and he, some people have interpreted that to mean he's saying that religious, uh, new set of religious beliefs led to uh, the emergence of the market. I think he's saying, he's not saying that, he's saying these arose together uh, simultaneously. Uh, so they're, uh, they're both uh, endogenous. Um, 
So uh, I'm saying that in the long term, if you face a moral dilemma enough times, uh, you're going to, as, as Frank suggests, uh, change your beliefs because um, it's just costly to keep violating your beliefs. It's just psychologically costly to do. So you change your beliefs um, and you become maybe a progressive rather than a market uh, supporter or something like that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.